0: Hi, this is Welcome to the End Times from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and at heart, just a little bit of a good person, Lonnie Dianrich.
1: And I'm Southern Fried scholar and just enough of a bastard to be worth knowing, Dr. Kelly Jones.
0: (laughs) And we're here today to talk about the very last day of the rest of their lives, Good Omens, Season 1, Episode 6, the season finale. This episode, Surprising No One, was written by Neil Gaiman and directed by Douglas McKinnon.
1: I am having a moment here. Time to stop Armageddon. In the very first day of the rest of their lives, we open with Crowley on trial and hell and then rewind back to the present where we pick up where we left off with Adam and the them going into the airbase and Crowley, Madam Tracy slash Aziraphale and Shadwell waiting outside the gate. This time, however, we stay with our angel and demon as the guard chases the kids and the Bentley bursts into flames. Crowley mourns his car for a moment, but then they go into the airbase to look for Adam.
0: By the way, that bullshit with Crowley on trial is a fractured tease, and it's bullshit, and I hate it, (laughs) but we'll get to that later. Inside the airbase, Newt and Anathema watch helpless as nuclear missiles are being readied around the world. Anathema discovers that Newt is not a computer engineer. He's a computer destroyer, and she tells him to try to fix the problem. He hits a few keys and takes the worldwide nuclear arsenal offline. And this, my darlings, is known as failing up.
1: The four horsemen show up outside to meet Adam, who is not impressed with them. He knows who his real friends are. One by one, Adam's friends use the flaming sword to discorporate war, famine, and pollution. But death cannot be destroyed, so he just disappears. Anathema and Newt come outside, and she recognizes Crowley and asks about her book. Crowley tosses the charred remains back to Ananthema, and a final prophecy floats in the air. Aziraphale catches it, and it tells him and Crowley to choose their faces wisely.
0: Gabriel and Beelzebub show up, ready to force Adam to restart Armageddon. After all, it is the great plan. But Aziraphale and Crowley challenge Beelzebub and Gabriel. It may be the great plan, but is it the ineffable plan? This confuses Gabriel and Beelzebub, and they return to their domains to call off the fight. But then Satan finds out what's going on, and the ground starts to shake. Aziraphale and Crowley shift Adam into a parallel existence where they stand by his side as he challenges Satan and says that Satan is not his father. His power to alter reality makes it so, and Satan disappears, screaming.
1: Adam goes home where he is grounded. Aziraphale and Crowley go back to London. But as they get ice cream and wonder what's going to happen, they are both kidnapped by their respective sides and taken off to trial. Aziraphale is to be burned in hellfire. Crowley is to be disintegrated in a tub of holy water, but when Aziraphale walks into the flame, it doesn't hurt him. When Crowley gets in the tub, he splashes around and asks for a rubber duck. Both sides are so freaked out they return the angel and demon to earth.
0: Adam, grounded to his backyard, sees his friends and tells them he's going to be grounded forever, or until tomorrow. After his friends leave, he tells Dog not to escape the backyard because then he'd have to chase him to get him back. Part of the hedge disappears, and there goes Dog with Adam in hot pursuit. Later, in the park, Angel and Demon meet and switch bodies back. They decide things will be okay for now, until the next war anyway. They go to the Ritz, have a nice lunch, and flirt. Alright, so Dr. Jones, here we are. Season finale of Good Omens. Finale of uh, Welcome to the End Times about Good Omens. And uh, what'd you think?
1: I really loved this. The The body yeah. swap was so delightful. Yes. And I enjoyed every second of it. And we got Benedict Cumberbatch voicing Satan. So, I mean, come on. <laughs>
0: No, that was very fun. That was, okay, the Fractured Tease pissed me off. Yes. The Fractured Tease, this is just, okay, last week I ranted and I yelled at Neil Gaiman. (laughs) Now I'm going to yell at Neil Gaiman again because you're better than this, Gaiman. Fractured Tease, that's a rookie move. Don't do that. (laughs) Um, Okay, for anybody who doesn't know, Fractured Tease is when you take part of the exciting end part of a story and then you put it up front so that you get people excited. And then while they're excited, you're like, oh no, 36 hours earlier. You know, no, no, no. The only time a fracture tease has worked is in Breaking Bad because they didn't do it as this is something from the exciting part. They would do something completely out of context that once you understood where it was, where that was in the story and what the significance of it was, you could kind of like put together a thematic line for the story. So that worked out really well because it wasn't cheap cheating gaming so um (laughs) yeah well and the first time i watched
1: it (laughs) yeah i i I love you yelling and when when things (laughs) really make you mad um and i will stand by you because the first time i watched this episode the timeline was really confusing i was like what yeah what is going on like i'm i'm confused and i Mm -hmm. really felt like the adaptation with the body swap was enough like it was completely surprising right i didn't see it coming i didn't know that was was gonna happen i loved it so it felt like we didn't need that tease and then the timeline of it just made no sense. Like I didn't I, I yeah. don't know it did. No, just, we didn't
0: need that tease. Yeah it is a cheap rookie move and Neil Gaiman is better than that I'm so confused by this whole thing (laughs) but it's brilliant though like at the end when we get to the body swap and if you watch it knowing Mm -hmm. what happens Mm -hmm. you can see you can see Crowley in in Michael Sheen's performance of Aziraphale right you can see Aziraphale in David Tennant's performance as Crowley Um, you can see these little things that they do um, which when I watched it the first time through I didn't notice but the second time through and that's such a delight when when they do kind of a twist like that. And when you go back and watch it through, everything lines up. Nothing is inconsistent with it. It was right there in front of you the whole time. You just didn't see it. You yeah. know, that's brilliant. So I will say that like that, honestly, that's the kind of writing that is up to Neil Gaiman. That's what Neil Gaiman does. Neil Gaiman is goddamn magic. And so part of the reason why I'm spending all of this time yelling <laughs> at a famous writer um is because he's better than that and i know he's better than that because i've been following his work forever so i don't know what's going on but um by the time we get to the swap at the end and then the setup for season two like all of that is genius Mm -hmm. it's wonderful crowley splashing around you know in the in the tub (laughs) asking for rubber ducky and then knowing that that was a zero fail right that was a zero fail yep
1: you well, know doing that it was And when i watched so it the second time um mm-hmm. well the third time i don't know i watched this episode a bunch of times but yeah. crowley suggesting that that hell room that where the trial was needed house yeah. plants yeah i was like okay so this is a zero fail pretending to be crowley pulling something he knows about crowley which was really cute yeah. but then mm-hmm. when crowley was like oh this is a new jacket do you mind if i take it yes. off i'm like that's a zero fail that's totally that is a zero a zero fail. Fail. absolutely like being able to see that the second time around was great because it just fit you know so well
0: done Um, it is it was so wonderful so like that ending honestly like the last 15 minutes of this Mm -hmm. is my favorite of the whole run oh it's the best part of like the whole damn thing i loved it but it made me so mad about everything else (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, it was uh it was it was a bit um it was a bit difficult to open with this stupid fractured teeth and then end with the genius twist. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm mm-hmm. not a fan of twists. Like if you're gonna do a twist, you gotta do it right. That is not easy to do, you know? Um, and he did it and he pulled it off and it was awesome. So what was happening for the rest of this show? <laughs> <laughs> God damn it, gaming. Yes. <laughs> just like you're like so flustered you're just like I I. I, I, I not even <laughs> I can't I can't I cannot so all right let's go through the rest of the episode right Um, mm-hmm. of course the best stuff is always Crowley and Aziraphale yes right
1: and the Bentley when- oh god oh, and the Bentley. And Crowley having to wash and explode, and you know, his. I'm having uh, a moment here, like he's.
0: And when he lands on his knees, oh, I you know, know, I know, he's like, so yeah.
1: devastated, you know. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, oh, Bentley, you were a good car,
0: honey. And <laughs> just... right, and I love that that we have Aziraphale lost his bookshop, right? Mm-hmm. Crowley lost his Bentley. Again, we have this mirror of experience. Yeah, didn't really do anything with it didn't really like we didn't have anything similar from Aziraphale when he found out about his bookstore he was you know disappointed right you know but it wasn't that that deep emotional thing and this is also a time where like you know if we had had for instance when Aziraphale found out about his bookstore like a deep emotional moment that Crowley walked him through and then Aziraphale used that used Crowley's you know, comfort for him to comfort Crowley through the loss of the Bentley. That could have been really cool. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, didn't do it. <laughs> no. You know.
1: Or if Aziraphale had like saved one tiny piece of the Bentley, the
0: way yes. that Crowley, yes, saved because the book. Crowley saved the book. Yes. Aww. Something like that. Something that gives <laughs> you that, like that reflection. You know that there was something like if he'd saved like the the queen, the best of queen for him, or something. Oh, you know yeah. if he had managed to miracle it out before it exploded, something, something. But no, no. no. But okay, you know what? Fine, whatever. <laughs> anyway, um, so we have this. You know they meet at the air base, and then there's all of this. Like they go into the air base. There's Adam and the them. There's the four horsemen and and Aziraphale and Crowley are standing there. These are our protagonists. Not really doing much, except for Aziraphale saying that you have to kill the kid.
1: Yeah, and that really bothered me. Um, And I was, you know, I was actually glad to see Shadwell hesitate.
0: Yes, but he's just a wee bairn, he says. Yes. Like,
1: so, okay,
0: Shadwell had a moment. When Shadwell is your moral compass, (laughs) things are fucked up.
1: (laughs) That's when you know it's bad. When the
0: man who burns witches for a living is your moral compass. We are having a problem. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I really love that Madam Tracy managed to pull the gun. You know, like she overpowered Aziraphale in that moment and and really had a lot of agency there. And I was really glad to see that from her. But man, Aziraphale, honey,
0: we got it. We got to have a talk. Like that was not okay. You know what? I have no. Okay. Again. Okay. (laughs) I have no problem with Aziraphale going dark. Like, I have, I love a dark story. Anybody who's listened to us talk about Wesley over on Still Dead, the podcast about Angel, the series, you know how much I love when a character goes dark, mm-hmm. right? Um, but here we have Aziraphale, who in the beginning was like, well, I can't do that. I'm good. Not, we shouldn't do it. That's Inherently evil and wrong. Mm -hmm. I can't do that because I'm good. So I'll encourage somebody else to do it. And then when it comes right down to it, I'm going to try to kill this child, right? There's no arc of narrative significance to... um, to tell us why Aziraphale has come to this, um, to give us a sense of his own internal struggle. What is it that would have made him go dark like that? Um, He wants to save the world and he's, you know, like... We don't see him struggle with this. He just chooses to kill a child for no narrative reason. There's no narrative payoff. We don't, for a moment, get, you know, everybody looking at Aziraphale like, what the fuck, man? You know, and here we had, and here, in the beginning, right? You know, we're doing that whole, the the time where we take a half hour to go through all the flashbacks. (laughs) We have Crowley and the Noah's Ark thing. You can't kill the kids. Mm -hmm. Crowley's what... Crowley so it should have been Crowley at least who stopped him and Crowley should be concerned Yeah. if Aziraphale is okay with killing a kid Aziraphale is not what we are told that what What? you have the thing there where he <laughs> says you can't kill the kid right from Crowley why are we with zero Azir- why what well I, okay. yeah
1: and then Aziraphale you know turns again you know, after that, and first of all, I want to give Adam props for yeah. He, you know, he separates his from Madame Tracy, gives him his body back, and does not hold a grudge. You know, he's like, Okay, you yeah. just tried to kill me, but I am going to help you and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to do what you say. I'm like, yeah. that is a stand-up
0: kid. Um, it's a stand-up kid it's also a no consequence universe right. for Aziraphale right. and if you're gonna make somebody go dark and try to kill a kid you gotta play that right. through
1: especially because then he comes back and tells Crowley you know when Satan's coming he's like we'll do something or I'll never talk to you again like okay yeah. now save this child or or I'm going to you know not speak to you again when Aziraphale just wanted to kill the kid so like yeah I uh, uh yeah
0: yeah no, it's not. It's not great. It's <laughs> not great. You know? And then we have this moment with Aziraphale and Crowley where Aziraphale says, perhaps we should wait. And Crowley's like, for what? Till he grows up? Right. You know? Right. And I'm like, "What? Are, so who's arguing for... How, what, are we, what? Like, what is this? this uh, none of it's clear. None of it makes any sense. None of it has any narrative follow through. It's just this moment. And then we all act like it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal. And then... You know, so we've got the um, we've got the four horsemen have been banished, mm-hmm. right? Um, but it ain't over yet. You know, we get um, Gabriel and Beelzebub who come in, and then we get this wonderful moment with John Hamm as Gabriel, where he's like, "Don't talk to me about the greater good, sunshine. I'm the archangel, fucking Gabriel." (laughs) (laughs) That was one of the best lines in the whole show. Yeah, no, I absolutely love that. So I love that moment, right? You know, and and Beelzebub and um, and Gabriel are there, and they're having this argument. It's the great plan, but is it the ineffable plan? And the fact that the um, the demon side would even even care whether it was the ineffable plan or not. They're against God so whether you can talk about this plan or not like it's God's plan and they don't care but we you know everybody then they call off their sides they're going back to tell their people to stand down this whole thing right and that's fine so that's a second layer mm-hmm. of whatever the hell this is supposed to be <laughs> um, then we've got the you know um, we've got and I, I like the moment it's unearned and it's weird but I like the moment where they shift into like this alternate reality space uh, right when
1: they unfurl their
0: wings wings and uh, Hold his hands oh my god God. no i love that i loved it it's unearned and weird and it doesn't make any narrative sense but i love it yep
1: me too i was like i don't understand what they're doing or why they're doing it but i love that moment so yeah so much and and you know and part of this too when they were going through this you know battle of banishing the four horsemen and kind of getting to yeah. that point where they've decided to now try to actually help adam um mm-hmm. little pepper just yes. stole the show for me going up against uh-huh. war and she's like i do yeah. not endorse everyday sexism we're adam's I real <laughs> friends i believe in
0: peace bitch i was like when can i have that show like just right pepper's pretty good i like this my mom says that war is just masculine imperialism executed on a global stage i'm like your mom's not wrong pepper (laughs) mom's not wrong um but i don't know like the whole like i believe in peace bitch i believe in a clean world i believe in food and healthy lunch like all of that felt very very after school special to me it had that kind of patina of um simplistic virtue signaling. I don't know. Um so all of that was a little bit it was a little bit flat for me, but mm-hmm. I, I like the concept of it. I like that these these kids but the thing is that these kids don't have any inherent power. Right. Adam has the power. These are just kids. Just kids. And you know, all powerful demon four horsemen of the apocalypse. Like it feels like an uneven power situation there. We got a bit of a power differential. So I get that they've got the flaming sword, yeah. you know? So, I mean, there's there's that, but it's all... But also, like, they all use the flaming sword to take them all out, despite the fact that the flaming sword was with war. And why was it with war? How did war get the flaming sword? The flaming sword was given to Aziraphale, and I know he gave it to Adam and Eve, and it must have traveled through the centuries somewhere, but why is that war's sword? Yeah. How is... Uh, how does that make any sense yeah that that was never explained (laughs) and why didn't they use the sigils for each of them why didn't the crown take out pollution right you know right like
1: yeah the way they did that in the book where you know the kids each made something the way they had always made things out of pretending to be the equivalent of those symbols
0: made more sense to me absolutely that absolutely makes more sense this was weird <laughs> it was weird it, it was, was weird. all weird but I love this line though from death I am creation's shadow you cannot destroy me that would destroy the world I love I am creation's shadow mm-hmm. I think that's so interesting and such a lovely concept to kind of unpack oh yeah you know yeah and I, um, I
1: love death's
0: exit after yeah know, after
1: he faced down Adam um, and I guess mm-hmm. that was God narrating you know death mm-hmm. opened wings of night and th- yeah. there's i don't know I'm, I'm telling you put wings on some super, supernatural being i'm a sucker like it's just my I favorite favorite thing i love it um but you know it said wings that were shapes cut through the matter of creation into the darkness beneath mm-hmm. and in which distance lights lights glimmered lights that might have been stars or may have been something entirely Aww. else. And so just, just that whole idea of shifting from creation to yeah. darkness and there being an actual layer between those things mm-hmm. was so yeah. beautiful, you know, and so evocative. And then we just don't do a whole lot with it. Although I was glad we got to see death again at the pond. Mm-hmm.
0: for a second. Yes. <laughs> He's just chilling. See death duck, is, you death you know. is very fun. Death is very fun. Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, then Adam faces down Satan and just says, you're not my father. Okay, And then because he can still warp reality, he just makes it so. So, yeah. okay, Yeah. You know, fine. I had
1: I had Mm -hmm. feelings, you know, about that whole Mm -hmm. thing. But I, I think, yes, like if if he's if reality will listen to him, he has the opportunity to change reality. And so he changes that. Part of himself mm-hmm. right so that he's not the son of Satan anymore. right and
0: I like that so then does he
1: become fully
0: human that is my understanding except for that at the end he is able to make a bush disappear and that's not typically a human skill set um not typically not typically a human skill set so unless the dog still had some hell in it and he could power that I don't, again I don't I don't know. I don't know. Does this lack clarity? (laughs) Yes. Is there any understanding of why they were? Okay. Then, then, then we have this ending with Adam, which is this whole poetic thing. There would be other summers, but there would never be one like this. Not ever again. Yada, yada, yada. Um, There never was a getting the apple, right? So Adam, okay. Adam getting an apple from a tree. That's not accidental. That's not. But you know what? We didn't do anything with the original Adam. He's not significant at all, aside from being unnaturally beautiful and hanging out with Eve, right? So that's what we got. (laughs) Eve was the one who got the apple and was like, here's the knowledge, idiot. Eat it, right? You know, so um, Adam was passive. He did not get the apple. He just simply ate it when it was passed to him, you know? Um mm-hmm. and so here we have this Adam and again I I you know already ranted about this in last week's episode but here we have this Adam who is uh, named the same thing so there should be some kind of reflection except that the the Adam from Garden of Eden is passive and does nothing aside from you know knock Eve up and then wander off into the desert with her. Um so none of that <laughs> like that reflection that opportunity for reflection here is so great. Then there never was an apple in Adam's opinion that wasn't worth the trouble you got in for eating it, right which is a line that I like, right and the apple was the one that granted knowledge, except that Adam has already been like this Adam, the Antichrist Adam or the previously known as the Antichrist Adam um <laughs> is uh does is not getting knowledge from this apple he's just stealing an apple it is just an apple, but the thing is that if you're using an apple as a symbol for knowledge, I you know what I don't even. It's 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 <laughs> I, I don't I can't with this like nothing is is coming together nothing is coming through the narrative is all over the place and then we've got Shadwell and his stupid fucking finger oh my god oh my
1: god <laughs> fucking Shadwell I mean the guy gets one decent yes. moment of not wanting to shoot a child and that's a pretty low bar that is a low bar Everything else with him is terrible.
0: Objecting to killing children is a low goddamn bar. That's a low bar.
1: That's it. That's all he gets. And he's just the literal worst.
0: And he's just the worst. And the whole time he's pointing that finger, I'm like, you know what? Go back home with Madam Tracy and put that digit to actual use, idiot. You know? (laughs) I mean, if you have a magic finger, do some good with it, idiot. (laughs) Instead of asking her, how many nipples have you got? Just the two. two. Here, let me spend my nest egg on buying you a place to live for the rest of your useless fucking life, Shadwell. Oh
1: dear God! Just pardon me while I die of laughter. I am having a moment here. that
0: did it to some good use oh my god i love you so much i love you too but seriously though here she (sighs) is spending all of the money that she has earned doing all of these jezebel things and now i'm no longer a jezebel so i'm worthy of you and having any man is better than no man and i will tell you right now that shit ain't true
1: (laughs) (laughs) see i would have liked to have pulled my other favorite gabriel line
0: and used it on shadwell
1: yes shut your stupid mouth and die already
0: shut your stupid mouth and die already <laughs> yes also something i'd like to have on a t-shirt um right? but yeah the shadwell and his suit and my finger is so powerful oh my god just like go away like you're making yeah. a bad thing worse just stop you know um <laughs> speaking of bad things um i'm sorry like i'm sorry everybody out there who love this there's stuff to love there's stuff to love i'm infuriated for a number of reasons <laughs> Because this mm-hmm. should be better. Anathema and Newt.
1: Oh, God.
0: Um, You just stopped them from blowing up the world. I guess my boyfriend here did the tricky bit. Oh, my God. For fuck's sake, Anathema. Your boyfriend yeah. there failed up. Your boyfriend there is so incompetent that he accidentally prevented the world from blowing up. That is not something that's to his credit. You are the one who placed him there. You are the one who told him to touch the thing you because you knew he was an idiot who would ruin everything you
1: used (laughs) that it's like i solved all these clues i figured it out i found a way to do it but look he pushed the button all by himself but let's give the penis the credit
0: yes by all means and my boyfriend my boyfriend Boyfriend? you slept with him once he didn't bring you home i say make him work for it anathema (laughs) At least Pepper called it out. Another deluded you know, victim of the patriarchy. Yes.
1: Yes. At least Pepper called it out. But, but oh Jesus. my god! I'm like, there's deluded, and then there's just deluded. Like, come
0: on. Oh, and it's you're just... a pretty good witch finder, though. You found me. Found me? No, Ugh. he didn't. No, he didn't. He literally fell in a door. He drove his car hole. into a hole. Yes. That is <laughs> so bad. He didn't find you he fell on you like that is not (laughs) that (laughs) is not to his credit and then and then the new book comes with all of the answers to like everything right um Mm -hmm. and then he says do you want to be a descendant all your life you know what opinion you get to have on anything that anathema does or is you get nothing nothing newt no opinion this does not involve you yeah and then they burned the book, Kelly. Okay, yeah, I actually I, actually I, I, thought I you'd had, be upset
1: about that. I had very serious thoughts about this because mm-hmm. what the holy fuck? Yeah, what? what you can't just put it in a like, drawer. What? I, I you gotta I, burn it. You, you burn a heirloom of prophecy that a you know to be accurate and yes. b just helps save the world and yes. c has protected your family for yes. generations and you burn it because
0: your boyfriend doesn't like it yes what the okay fuck? all right this oh. though this not entirely inaccurate to actual like things that happen all the time
1: oh i know that's what <laughs> women do for so fucking men. bad
0: it's so like, it's so Jesus. terrible and not just not just that you burn it for your boyfriend you burn it for that asshole right? i mean for the stupidest man on the planet, yeah. okay, second stupidest man because there's shadow. <laughs> second stupidest man on the planet. You're going to destroy. You know what? Here's the thing. You can just slip it in a drawer and not look at it. You know or you can do it that. To someone you don't else have to in your family who or give it to someone it. else. Exactly.
1: You know, there's a million different options. Give it to a for crying out loud. A like, Ziraphel. Exactly. Give it to plus- a Ziraphel. You know, I don't care. You don't burn books,
0: people. No, you don't burn books. It's a bad thing. You don't burn books. You don't do it. And after, 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 okay, also, what the fuck with, okay, if Agnes knows everything that's going to happen, why did she... Go 300 years through time threatening the guy who opens the thing at anathema's invitation, by the way. So why should he get threatened with his mistress, you know, coming out? Yeah. I don't know what the hell that's about. Um, But you put it through. And so if Agnes knew that anathema was going to let a man tell her to burn the damn book, why send it? Why Um, write it? Why not send it to perhaps a different descendant who's not an idiot? I I, I I don't know. I'm watching it like, yeah. See, now, if she had
1: said, if Ananthema had said, okay, I don't want to spend the rest of my life based on knowing what's going to happen. Yeah. Fine. Mm-hmm. That's her choice. Completely hers to make. Give the book to somebody else. Wash your hands of it. Whatever. But maybe take a peek at like the first prophecy that says, by the way, Ananthema, Newt, was a temporary thing or, or, or realize you don't even need a prophecy, but realize, huh, I don't have to listen to Agnes. I don't have to listen to you either. Yes. You dumbass. Could this possibly be? Bye.
0: Like, come on. Could we possibly have, you know, like a moment of, of independence where, uh, where she realizes that she doesn't have to listen to anybody. Right. You know, but because here she's I just mean, trading on. Agnes telling her what to do for yeah. this idiot telling her what to do. At least Agnes right. had a skill set.
1: And know? I mean, this dude, like, you're not even going to be able to have Wi Fi in your house. Is it really worth it? I mean, come on. No. Even if he was super. Bro. No, I'm <laughs> sorry.
0: Like, the best man on. in the world versus Wi Fi, Wi Fi wins every day, uh, yeah. twice on Sundays, you know? Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't, this, the whole thing with anathema. Made me crazy. I I feel really bad because I'm doing so much ranting on something that like in a lot of ways I really like I enjoy I enjoy the Aziraphale Crowley stuff I love the body swap at the end I think yeah. that's genius it's just part of it is that um, there are things to enjoy John Hamm shut your stupid mouth and die already I'm the archangel <laughs> fucking Gabriel um, like they're they're really wonderful moments and wonderful things and the love story between Crowley and Aziraphale of course I love that I think that's wonderful but overall because it is so good and there's so much much you know um there's so much potential here for it to be just amazing Mm -hmm. you know to do some of this shit with it you know is is a bit much well and i'm
1: i'm just you know i guess you just hit a point where i'm like i am so sick of the super talented competent incredibly smart gifted woman Putting up a, a man up above her and everything in her life. And yeah. I I'm, I'm just sick of it,
0: you know? Like No, it, it's and especially just... a loser man. Yeah. You know, this kind yeah. of thing.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's terrible. Um but but I did have, in addition to the Crowley and his earful wonderfulness, mm-hmm. um, we got Leslie back and he's alive again and that made me very, very happy.
0: Yes. I was very happy for Leslie and Maud.
1: I was very happy for that. And mm-hmm. seeing the Bentley in the bookstore restored. Yes. You know, just yes. made me love Adam even. Yes. More, you know, and that mm-hmm. was great. Um and it and it was funny because I remember when I started watching the episode for the first time and like everything was wrapped up to the point of the book, mm-hmm. but there was a whole lot of time left and I was yeah. like, okay, what what are they going to do? Yeah. You know, and the angels and demons come and kidnap Crowley and fell, mm-hmm. um, and we get that just absolute delightful lines from Uriel and Sandalfoot and mm-hmm. I love the the ongoing sound of music jokes yes <laughs> but they're like rogue <laughs> angels all tied up with strings these are a few of our favorite things it oh was my so god funny.
0: no that was it great. was so funny and,
1: was and in great. my head I hear Cordelia What's it's a rogue angel what's a rogue angel <laughs> <laughs> from those of you who don't listen to Still Dead, this is a "What's a Rogue Demon" joke from, yes. from Angel. The series, mm-hmm. but that was very delightful.
0: Yeah, no, that was that really was great, good. and I loved that whole. I loved the trial. I yes. loved when when Aziraphale goes into the flame brought up from hell, right? You know, and then we have holy water brought down from heaven into the hell space. I thought that was a really wonderful reflection. I loved, uh, you know, when, when Aziraphale walks in and then just breathes the fire at them. And when Crowley's (laughs) just splashing away in the, uh, in the holy water and everybody's wigged out by this whole thing. Um, I love all of that. I thought that was great when they did the swap back and they're having that conversation. And uh, Crowley says, for my money, the big one is all of us against all of them. You know, we're setting up season two, which is really very cool. So I like that a lot. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I'd like to think that none of this would have worked out if you weren't at heart, just a little bit of a good person. And if you weren't deep down, just enough of a bastard to be worth knowing. I kind of love that. I love it so much. And, I thought that was and I great. love
1: them ending up. You know, they're they're kind of when they're figuring out. Crowley's like, "Oh no, we're not done. Like, this mm-hmm. is going to be a second war." Um, and then he's like, "All right, time to leave the garden." Let yeah. me tempt you to a spot of lunch. And then Aww. we get my new favorite gif of all time. And fell, saying, temptation accomplished. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Oh, I, I need that. That I, that, I need it's it stitched so on wonderful. everything. It's so, <laughs> it's so great. Wonderful. Oh, and we get Tori God. Amos singing at the end. And that yeah. was so delightful. Yeah. So delightful. No, it's so, really nice. I mean, for all of its flaws. Like, it is a great apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. You would think I could say this word. Lenny, we do two <laughs> shows about apocalypse. <laughs> apocalypse, apocalypses, apocalypse, apocalypse. Yes. It's the best apocalypse love story.
0: Like yeah. it really, <laughs> it really no, is. No, the love story is fantastic. You know, um, I could have I could have gone with a little more textual. I could have gone with maybe a kiss, but whatever. Uh, um it's fine. Yeah. It's uh, fine. It's I'm fine. Sorry, can we just
1: two. revisit the wall? Like oh, if we're gonna we can, do we can revisit and time wall. jumps.
0: Yeah. If we're gonna tease and time jump, let's do that. Let's just every every twenty minutes or so go back to the wall and that's fine. Yes. Yes. Um that would be really great. All right, so Dr. Jones, what's your favorite part of this adaptation?
1: Oh, the body swap. I mean Crowley as a zerophil in the hellfire and a zerophil as Crowley in the holy water is so, so great. Yes. So
0: I I Absolutely agreed. It is the best adaptive choice that they made. They added this in. And the thing is, is that it's it's funny because when we're not working from the original source material, everything, like the colors turn up. You know, it's uh-huh. there's something about working from the original source material and maybe not... Being willing to change it that much or make that many changes, that's part of the problem. Because as soon as he did this, like I'm looking at season two, of Good Omens, and I'm thinking this is going to rock. Right. You know, like yes. if once we're away from the shackle of the original Good Omens book and you let Neil Gaiman free, although he was free, it was his material he was adapting. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what happened, Gaiman. I don't know. Um <laughs> But once you let him kind of do his thing, like the next season, I think will probably be absolutely incredible, you know, um, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, that that was amazing. The the body swap was just genius.
1: It was it was so great. And I, I mean, and to be completely surprised and delighted mm-hmm. by something, by a story I know so well. Yeah. And, and never would have seen that coming was so much fun. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah um so what was your favorite part so even though it makes no sense within the the narrative and i'm not really sure why they did it yeah just crowley miracling away with azaraphale and adam with them you know really teaming up and taking his hand and helping him but they're standing there in their wings lonnie and oh my god i just can't like the wedding that i want between the two of them with those wings unfurled, and I want them to kiss, and I want both sets of wings to turn gray, pearly yeah. silver. And, like, yeah. oh my God, it's ridiculous <laughs> how much
0: I love it. Yes. No, that is absolutely wonderful.
1: <laughs> what about you? What was your favorite part?
0: God, okay, look, uh, I mean, the body swap thing clearly is my favorite part of the whole entire season. It may be Mm -hmm. one of my favorite things that has happened like on television. It was so great. You know, it was so good. Um, But, you know, aside from that, I would say my favorite part is probably don't talk to me about the greater good sunshine. I'm the archangel fucking Gabriel. Like, I (laughs) love that. And I want that cross stitched on a pillow. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So one of the things that we've been talking about since the beginning is how at the end of this whole thing, I'm going to go on a rant about the narrative. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna try to keep this short. I've ranted way too much. I've been way too angry. I've been yelling at one of the most brilliant writers ever to grace like the world of literary canon or whatever. And um, I don't know. I don't I just have no shame about that. But anyway. Um, all right, so here are the problems with the narrative. One, a mini-series does not have to have episodic structure. It's legit to just be one story across six episodes. But It's six hours of story. Like... Breaking it up into episodes that each have a narrative structure of their own, so they accomplish a story, you know, they land a story in each one, gives it a lovely cohesion. So we're kind of missing that. Why not have a nested narrative? Why not have episode? Like, there's no reason not to do it. You don't have to. I mean, for it to be narratively legitimate, you don't have to. But considering how, like, narratively illegitimate so much of this actual narrative is, I think it could have... Could have definitely helped, you know, couldn't hurt to have a little bit of narrative in there actually working. Um, but, well, Good Omens does have a lot to love about it. I know I've been ranting about how, you know, angry I am about all of these things. It does have a lot to love about it, uh, which is clearly we've dedicated three months to talking about it, first the book and then the TV show. It is riddled with narrative issues first of all the protagonists are crowley and aziraphale yet they're just reacting to the stuff everyone else is doing and they are essentially ineffectual all along the way um so remember a protagonist has three qualities right he's your pov character which is true of crowley and aziraphale uh the most at stake if they lose the fight not really since the whole world is going to be destroyed so everybody has a lot at stake but they do have a lot at stake so i could probably let that slide um and they provide the motive force for the story in pursuit of a clear achievable goal and that's where it falls down Their goal is to, quote unquote, stop Armageddon. And that's great. But nothing they actually do really does anything. Like if they are removed from this entire thing, pretty much everything goes the same. You know, Um, so they both try to influence young warlock. Right. Which is great. But he's not the Antichrist. So none of that matters. (laughs) All the time that we spend... With the, you know, the nanny and the magician at the party and all this kind of stuff. Like, none of that stuff matters because it's not the actual Antichrist. So that is a waste of our time. That is a narrative side street. We're not even doing anything there aside from these people being too incompetent to do anything. Um, They chase around the country looking for the new Antichrist, but never find him in time to influence him. Never find him before he shows up at Tadfield Air Base, at which point he's already, Adam has already done the work. Like, Adam got the knowledge, Adam made the choices, Adam changed the way that he was, you know, approaching this whole thing. Without Crowley and Aziraphale even being within spitting distance, they have nothing to do with that. (laughs) Um, The one, the one effectual thing that they do that actually does have some impact is get Agnes Nutter's book. But that was by accident. They didn't even steal it. It was left (laughs) in their car. They didn't even steal it. They didn't even... (laughs) steal it if okay if if we already had right Aziraphale talking to somebody about how how this was a rare book and nobody knew it there was only one copy and it was destroyed blah 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 right so we know that he knows that's a big deal if Aziraphale had seen that book in anathema's like bike basket or whatever and uh-huh. then had slid it into his coat okay we're off to the racist because there you have an active goddamn protagonist it landed on him he did nothing for it <laughs> It's like Newt and sex. It just (laughs) happened to him. He did nothing to earn that. It just happened. And in the end, Adam would have made the same choices whether they were there or not, except maybe when he faces down Satan having an angel and a demon holding him, but they hold his hands and then they say, well, you're not evil incarnate. You're not heaven incarnate. You're human incarnate. What does that even mean to an 11 year old? I don't even know. Is that the thing that made him realize that Satan doesn't have to be his father, that he can actually change that reality? I don't know, but it's still Adam who does it? You know, right. like these guys are not doing anything. And then we have this, we have this line that says, just imagine how awful it might have been if we'd been at all competent. It would have mm-hmm. been exactly the same. You've done nothing. <laughs> You've done Nothing. Everything you did. Um, But also here we have, you know, Crowley and Aziraphale wanting to save the world, right? Wanting to stop Armageddon, right? And then we have a little bit of conflict because the thing is that in order for a conflict, a central narrative conflict to work, you have to have an antagonist with a goal versus a protagonist with a goal. And those goals are mutually exclusive, right? So they've got to be stop Armageddon. And then the other side has to be, you know, make Armageddon happen. And we sort of have that structure because we have the we have Beelzebub, we have Hester and Leaguer and all the demons trying to make this war happen. Then we have Gabriel and Michael and Uriel and Sandalfun all trying to make the war happen. Right. But the thing is that none of them really seem to know that Crowley and Aziraphale are trying to stop it. They just know that Crowley and Aziraphale are annoying they don't know that they're trying to stop Armageddon. They're not trying to stop Crowley and Aziraphale from stopping Armageddon. So, yes, they have mutually exclusive goals, but they don't know. They don't know. Yeah. So they're not right. doing anything. They're not blocking. Nothing they're doing is blocking Crowley and Aziraphale from saving the world because nothing they're doing is blocking Crowley and Aziraphale from getting to Adam, which is fine because Crowley and Aziraphale don't know what the fuck they're doing anyway. And if Haster and Leger and Gabriel and Michael did nothing, then Crowley and Aziraphale would still be exactly the same amount of effectual, which is not at all. So this whole thing that we have built is a bunch of, it's like a bunch of, you know how in a a clock, like in the the clockworks, there's those gears that work against each other and then they move each other throughout the thing and every one affects the other. This Mm -hmm. is clockworks where there's a bunch of gears and none of them are touching each other. They're there. But they're not touching each other. They're not interacting with each other. It's not a cause and effect. They're just spinning. And they're pretty. You know, I'm not (laughs) going to say they're not pretty. They're pretty. They're throwing a zero up against a wall. That's some pretty shit. But it is not narratively functional. This isn't happening. This isn't working. Um, So the actual protagonist antagonist pairing is heaven and hell because they are actually making stuff happen. But the fact of the matter is that heaven and hell have the same goal. They want the war. They both want the war, so they really like. They want to. They want to get to the point where there is a conflict. But at this point, they're just both trying to make the war start happening. They're actually on the same side at mm-hmm. this point, right? So, um, so there's that, and then there's my whole rant from last week about leaving symmetry on the table for reasons of why, <laughs> why, <laughs> why. And then, you know, in this one, we've got the symmetry that we had in the book with all the kids creating these things that are, you know, analogs for the sigils that the, uh, the three horsemen anyway have. Right. We've got and then we leave that, which was actually cool and neat Mm -hmm. and kind of like the the children could create something that's almost as powerful as the thing because it's about the symbol and about how it's created and all that we could have had that that would have been really interesting did not do that just everybody pick up a flaming sword and give some kind of inane platitude and there we go that's how you get rid of hellish horsemen from the apocalypse is just inanity just the more you know there you go just show them a the more you know commercial and uh and then they just the four horsemen just bugger off, you know. Um so yeah, all of that is my my narrative rant on this which should have been and could have been so much better. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, and it's yeah. always frustrating
1: to see a story with such great great potential. Yes. And then
0: end up feeling
1: frustrated at very Written aspects. by
0: a goddamn genius. I'm sorry, but Neil Gaiman, legitimate goddamn genius. Yes. right? Yes. yes. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
1: Uh, but it is great for me. And like one of the reasons I love podcasting with you is learning so much about this as both reader and writer, Uh-huh. which is fantastic. You know, so I can take that away from my learning. It's <laughs> wonderful. And I'm very sorry that it frustrates you so much. Although I have to say I, I grin And chuckle and laugh quite a lot when you rant because
0: it's (laughs) kind of great. (laughs) You know, what's funny is that like, once I get started, as you can probably tell, once I get started, I can't really stop. And I'm always in the middle of these rants. There's this part of my like this voice in my head that's like, okay, Lonnie, just calm your shit down. Like, it's fine. It's a story, you know? But the thing is, the stories are the most powerful force on Earth. They are the most important thing that connects us to each other and reflect us back to ourselves. And if it wasn't a genius writing this I probably wouldn't be so angry if it wasn't somebody with Neil Gaiman's immense talent and Terry Pratchett. I mean, Terry Pratchett, you know, was was uh, he's he's gone now, sadly. But um, but he, of course, was but but writing the TV show is Gaiman because Pratchett isn't around to be a part of it. Um, And Gaiman, uh, I know, knows better than all of this. But I can also see how. This is, you know, what is it, 30 years old? Almost 30 years old, that book? Um, uh, it was published and... in 1990, right? 90, 90 or 91, I think it was around then. Yeah. Um, so it's almost 30 years old. And the writer that you are at any particular stage in your career, you know, you progress and you get better. I mean, that's the whole point of doing anything. So the writer that, that Neil Gaiman was back then is not the writer that he is now. But I would, I would want the writer that he is now to show up And be like, you know what, let's fix this, you know, Um, and take the skill set that he has now and apply it to that. But that can be very difficult when you're working with your own work, because um, even something written 10 years ago, like if I go back into a book I wrote 10 years ago, um, it's written by a different person. That, Mm -hmm. That was a different person. And so like I couldn't go back and really necessarily rewrite it. I think that would be very difficult. So I think there's a specific challenge to adapting your own work but at the same time no Gaiman Gaiman's good Gaiman's good like he knows what he's doing so If this had come out of somebody who like didn't know what they were doing, it was or whatever, like my expectations, first of all, wouldn't be quite so high and my frustration wouldn't be quite so intense. Um, Mm -hmm. But because I know what Neil Gaiman can do and I know how good he is and I know how smart he is and I know how amazing he is. um, This makes me just want to go back in time and find a way to get to him before he writes these and just get him drunk and be like, listen to me, man. I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Gaiman, you can hire me as a consultant for season two. Um, so <laughs> that would be amazing. Oh, God, this man is never going to call me. Are you kidding me? First of all, he's never going to listen to this. If he does, he's going to hate the shit out of me. So it's, that's dead in the water. But I'm just saying, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Do better. Do better next time. All right. So, Kelly, <laughs> my love. Take me out of this where I'm just ranting and being an asshole. Um, All right. So what did you have like general thoughts and reflections on the series as a whole?
1: So I find this absolutely hysterical because we've been kind of role playing this demon angel thing um, when clearly on any normative scale of any value whatsoever, you would be the angel and I would be the demon. Oh,
0: not true. But for this, I was
1: like, I'm going to follow this rant, this hell rant, with a little (laughs) bit of
0: angelic love. Exactly. (laughs) I knew what I was doing when I picked our roles, Dr. Jones. I know who's the angel and who's the demon.
1: It's funny. It's so funny. But you know me. I have to go into like a personal reflection.
0: (laughs) I know, which I love. It's one of my favorite things about working with you are your personal reflections.
1: (laughs) But, you know, one of the reasons for doing this podcast was to try to figure out why I like Good Omen so much. Mm-hmm. Um, because it is problematic. I mean, it, it yeah. has, it, as we have seen, <laughs> it yes. has issues. But after reading the book and watching the show in depth, it just comes down to the love stories that are at the core of this story for me. So, you know, Crowley and Aziraphale, of course. Crowley and the Bentley, Aziraphale in mm-hmm. the bookshop. Um, each yeah. of their love for the world and Adam's love for the world and for his friends and for dog, mm-hmm. um, which also explains why the other quote unquote romantic and dear God, am I using that word because I can't find a better one? pairings mm-hmm. do not work for me and pull me out of the story so hard. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. because Shadwell is a verbally abusive asshat and I have no idea what's wrong with Madam Tracy. Like, I, I can't right. even begin. I per- don't know what she's I, thinking. I, the only thing I can hope is if you can't be, you know, what is it? If you can't be a good example, be a great warning. Be a horrible warning? right? Says? Yes. That's all I got for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Ananthema and Newt, you know, feels so forced together. Like the yeah. worst kind of arranged marriage. And there's no sense at all that they deeply appreciate or even deeply know each other. Or so, even work well
0: together. Yeah. I He's mean, an idiot common? and she just points his idiot gun. Right. Exactly. You know? And, yeah. ugh.
1: So my head canon is that burning Agnes' sequel book makes Ananthema realize that she's done, like, obeying anything. Yeah. And that she goes on to found a coven of her own and have all kind of badass adventures. Yes. While Newt is, like, trying to figure out how to operate an Xbox. Because
0: no, that's Newt just... can fall down a Tibetan hole. That's yes. what Newt can do. Exactly. We know he's good at that. He's very good at <laughs> falling down and
1: breaking things. And, yes. <laughs> Oh God! but I I do love so like the love stories resonate Mm -hmm. very much for me and I like the philosophy of the story you know and the questions that it it raises and refuses to answer Mm -hmm. about human nature and and good and evil and the humor and the running queen references Mm -hmm. you know and the restoration of the world so the people that die during Armageddon come back there's not this haunting loss or pain and there Mm -hmm. is a sense of hope and wonder and irreverence and to me, like, that's kind of a lovely way to end the story about the end of the world. Yeah. But this is also one of the very few cases where I enjoyed the TV adaptation more than the book. Mm-hmm. Um, there has not been a TV show based on a book I love this much since the old PBS version of Anna Green Gables. Oh, yeah. Which was, like, my favorite thing as a kid. Oh. Um and so I do appreciate some of the positive changes that Gaiman did make. And I loved every minute with Crowley and yeah And I'm so glad we got all those extra minutes that were not in the book because it did nothing narratively. And I just don't care. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think that's wonderful. And I'm very glad that you brought in the, uh, you know, the lighter side, the happier side. And these are all, you're you're right about all of that. They're, just because the narrative is, is, terrible Um, doesn't mean that there aren't other values in the book that can be in the book and the the story and the TV show that can be amazing. And there is so much in this um, that truly was just delightful. And the love story between Crowley and Aziraphale from book to TV show um, is is exactly that. Just delightful. I love that relationship. I love the actors playing these roles. Um, Mm -hmm. I I love all of that. I think that that's amazing. Um, All right. So Kelly, what is your favorite part of the whole series? It was
1: really hard choosing between the first half of episode three and the last mm-hmm. half of episode six, but it is mm-hmm. the first half of episode three, <laughs> just following Crowley and fell <laughs> through all those years of friendship and love and angelic demonic shenanigans, especially yes. the part with Shakespeare. Oh, <laughs> it just makes me so damn happy. Yes. So, what about you? Favorite part of the whole series.
0: Oh, last half of episode six—the uh, body swap—absolutely no doubt, my favorite, favorite part, and the thing that gives me hope for season two. <laughs>
1: that is fantastic, and this was fun for it was all of fun. the and all of the frustrations.
0: It still was it fun. It was fun. I it had a good time,
1: fun. and I would take you out to lunch
0: and toast it. It would be great. <laughs> sure, temptation accomplished, baby. Give me time and a place. I'll be there.
1: well we want to hear about all of your rants and favorite parts so to join in the discussion on twitter follow lonnie at lonnie Danrich and me at dr kelly jones and use the hashtag chipper end times.
0: welcome to the end times and everything chipperish media produces is made free and ad free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to breathe hellfire visit patreon.com chipperish to find out more
1: you can also show your support for Welcome to the End Times by going to Apple Podcasts and giving us a review or telling your friends about the
0: show and Chipper's Media or asking an archangel for a rubber duck and towel. This wraps up our podcast about good omens, but if the ineffable plan includes season two, we will be here for it. In the meantime, we'll be back on July 16th with Still Dead, our podcast about Angel the series, and it's very different kind of apocalypse. Until then, you don't have a side anymore. Neither of us do. We're our own side.